2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and we are ready to punish or to avenge all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. In 1867, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow penned that famous Christmas poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There's no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. But sometimes that peace is hard fought. And even as the Prince of Peace promised, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Matthew 10.36 And we look around and we see a world that is not at peace. We see, and what Paul now is going to deal with, is a church that is not at peace. As we go on in 2 Corinthians, this letter we've seen is described as a letter of comfort. And so many are surprised when they come to chapter 10 and find the last four chapters ending combatively as opposed to comfortingly. Some of this section, these last four chapters, is so strongly worded that a number of scholars think this is the lost letter of Paul. They think that someone came along and and, uh, tacked this on to the end. Back in chapter 7, verse 8, he made mention of this letter. And that letter seems to have been misplaced, but some scholars come along and they read chapter 10 and say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, here it is. Here's the lost letter. In fact, some call the first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians letter D, and they call the last four chapters letter E, as distinct from the first nine chapters, as if we've got two letters here. Now, I personally disagree. And I told you on Sunday I would tell you why tonight. So we're going to take a minute before we go any further and understand why this is one letter, in my opinion, and this is not a matter of anyone's salvation. If someone wants to disagree with me, they can be wrong and still be saved. (laughs) But I do believe that this is one coherent letter. Let me just give you a few reasons why. Number one, God's Word is not piecemealed. Nowhere else... In Scripture, do we see it sliced, diced, glued together, and taped down? 
We don't see pieces and bits and fragments put together. Uh, fragmented books and letters from across the years taped together and, and, and held up as if to be Holy Scripture. Yes, 40 writers over three continents across 1,500 years, absolutely, but one author. And as we read through Scripture, it is clear that there is one author of Scripture and the flow is His flow and it's His determination. Ephesians 4, 6 tells us we have one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One author inspiring every book, every letter, every prophecy that is in this book. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't have a letter that's the combination of two. I suppose you could and both inspired and so they're brought together. But I don't think that's the case here. In fact, for you technical Bible students, we encounter certain words and phrases in the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians that do not appear in any letter of Paul's written prior to 2 Corinthians. So they're unique to these last four chapters and to the first nine chapters. So in other words, there are words and phrases unique only to 2 Corinthians, at least up to this point. Which indicates to us that the last four are truly part of the first nine, that this was written at the same time, inspired all at once. So, while there is a change in the tenor of thought, which, yes, it does come across more defensive and and, and harsher, and Paul seems to be almost back on the bandwagon he was on when he wrote 1 Corinthians, yet though the tenor is different, there is what we would call linguistic continuity. I just wanted to say linguistic in here. Linguistic continuity, that the the phrasing and the words used and the, the language of Paul is consistent throughout this letter. Furthermore, we have no existing copies, what they call extant copies or fragments that show 2 Corinthians chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 as a separate document. But only as one. And as meticulous as the early church was with the four Gospels and all the apostolic letters, it would have been highly unlikely for them to cut and paste two together and call them one. So just because we see a change in the way it's presented or a change in the, again, the tenor of the letter doesn't mean that it's a different letter. I like what Peter wrote, 1 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word, more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. He says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So I do not believe that any of scripture was piecemealed or taped together. That each letter, each book, each prophecy comes as God brought it. Secondly, recognize that Paul is a pastor. Paul is a pastor. He is addressing two, at least two different peoples in this letter. He's addressing those who were made sorrowful by the letter that was written previously. And he's addressing those who are making strife currently. To those who are sorrowful, he writes comfort for nine chapters. For those making strife, he gets after them here at the end. Two different peoples. Again, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. 
I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not only that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. So there's a repentant group that Paul is talking to now. However, among those repentant, there in Corinth, there were still some tares. Tares among the wheat. There was a cadre of combatants causing conflict for the church of Corinth. And so Paul now, I believe, is addressing them. We will be introduced to them specifically in chapter 11. You'll hear about them. Ironically, they're called the super apostles. If you want to look ahead quickly, chapter 11, verse 5. He writes, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. And then in verse 13, he refers to them again, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Eminent apostles is hoperlion apostolon, and literally it can translate super apostles. These are people who we believe came to Corinth after Paul, presenting themselves as an arm of the church with new revelation and new information and they're preaching themselves, basically, and confusing those at Corinth. And part of the sorrowful letter that Paul wrote was was to correct that issue. And so corrected he did, but now he is dealing with them still. They're still around, these super apostles. Not Peter, John, Thomas, or or one of the original men. These are self-proclaimed apostles, commending themselves, as we'll see, but they are pseudo-apostles. They are not true. You know, i got to say, I get uncomfortable any time someone commandeers titles in the church. Even the title apostle today. Now, I believe there are apostles, little a. Sent ones. People whose calling is to be sent out into the world. That's what apostolos means. It's a simple word. And we see it applied beyond the twelve, even in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. Barnabas was called an apostle. He was not one of the twelve, but he was an apostle nonetheless because he was sent out. And I believe there is an apostolic calling that is even at work in the world today. It always makes me a little uncomfortable when someone comes and presents themselves as an apostle. I'm an apostle of the Lord. You know, uh, this is my calling. And, and when people cling to those things, titles, it makes me uncomfortable. And it's because Jesus said in Matthew 23, 6, the scribes and the Pharisees love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats of the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. See, the problem with titles is we have a human ego thing. We like titles. I confess to having liked titles, at least in the past. Boy, I couldn't wait to be called youth pastor. I thought that'd be cool. You know, to bear that title. And you know, titles just get in our way. Important labels, they tend to attract, they tend to attract false teachers, pseudo-apostles. I was thinking about this because Paul obviously is dealing with this issue in the chapter before us, which we'll come back to in just a moment. 
But I sometimes wonder, why is it? How is it that such false teachers rise up in the church? I mean, wouldn't you think that if someone wants to be highly honored, that they go find somewhere else? I mean, in the church, really? People who stand up and they want to be counted and they want, they want position and they want authority and they want to wear that title. And then I think, well, Longfellow got it right. Hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And what the enemy does is he goes right into the heart, into the camp of the church itself to stir discord. And to try to bring in these these false teachers. And we were talking about this at staff meeting today, and we're we're attracted to them. We have the same issues in the church of celebrity and glamour as as does the rest of the world. We just have Christian celebrities, but we still have them. You know, if some popular Christian recording artist were to come in the doors of the church tonight. At least one of us, probably me, would go, oh, hey. You know, we have billboards that go up proclaiming this famous person is coming to our church. Come see them. And I think, wow, who more famous than Jesus? And he's here every week. I can hear him say, I'm here every Wednesday. (laughs) We've got an issue with titles. Now I say Paul was a pastor, but not by title. Not something he claims for himself, but by deed. He is pastoring, shepherding, and it's a fine art. The fine art of shepherding is both feeding the flock while ferreting out the wolves. And that's the role, and that's what we see in Paul. That's his heart. Just as he would warn the shepherds of Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Listen to chapter 11, verse 28. Paul says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And so that's why I believe that Paul, late in this letter, gets personal. And that's the third reason why I believe that chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 are all still part of this one unified, cohesive letter of Paul. He gets personal. Paul often in his teachings takes blocks of theology and and teaches through personal concerns. He'll use himself if he has to as a teaching model. He's about to here in a very interesting way. Take your own issues and and present them as, as fodder, if you will, for theological and doctrinal teaching. It was common rhetorical teaching in the Hellenistic first century, and Paul uses it. It's still good today. It's the whole idea of personal application of biblical truth. Here's the biblical truth. Now, how do we apply that? Lord, help us to apply these things. Now, I'm not going to go much further than that other than to say there are a number of good reasons to accept this as one singular letter, and if you want to study it out, I would recommend Paul Barnett's New International Commentary on 2 Corinthians. That's the one that I've been using a lot in this letter. It's very scholarly, but it's very good in in kind of clarifying these issues and going into where these different ideas came from. It's kind of a thick book. But if you're a student of these things and you want to do that, you can check it out. It's pages 450 through 456. is where there's a lot of information about this particular letter. 
But considering what Paul and Corinth had struggled through together personally, this is a great field, fertile ground for exhortation. And that's what Paul's doing here. Exhortation. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, Paul wrote that one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. And I want to remind you that exhortation is the same word in the Greek as comfort. So this remains a comforting letter. But the comfort at the end of this letter is exhortational. It's a little heavier in speech, but it is exhortational. Paraklesis is that word. And the comfort of God comes when things are set right. We were out here praying earlier and I I was just silent, listening. And praying in the Spirit and, and, and listening for the Lord. And the thing that was bringing me the most comfort was the sense of His authority. I loved the worship tonight because so much of what we sang was about His authority. And it was praising Him for His authority. Don't you find that comforting? I mean, to know that God is God, and I am not. I know you find the fact that I'm not God comforting. But I mean, don't you personally find it comforting? Well, I don't have all the answers. Guess what? I'm not going to. But He does. Dad knows where we're going. The King of Kings knows how to rule. He knows how to hold it all together. And so, oh, I just I come under that. And even in exhortation, even when I need to be pushed a little bit, even when I need to be drawn back down to my knees, it is so good to know God is God. And I find comfort in that. So the comfort continues. And I want you to look for it as we study that this is comforting while exhortational. Now, we looked at the first six verses already on Sunday. In a study we called a different kind of war. I want to point one more thing out from the first six verses before we go on. And that is out of verse 5. Where he says, again, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we talked about those three strongholds. The stronghold of speculation. The stronghold of superiority. That is, man actually making himself superior to God as if we know better. And then thirdly, the stronghold of insubordination. And in all these things, what Paul is doing, what he's heading into here, is defending his ministry, but he's going on the offensive to do it. We're destroying these things. At Corinth and elsewhere, speculation, superiority, insubordination, we're bringing the Word, and we're bringing prayer, and we are totally destroying these strongholds. But what we didn't do Sunday, and I want to encourage you to do right now, is personalize each one. Personalize the stronghold. Consider it in your own life. Number one, is your faith speculative or is it proven? Is your faith speculative or is it proven? You see, the Word of God will tear down speculation. Uh, Prayer in faith will tear down speculation. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. And if you can't say that, if you feel like your faith is more speculative than it is rock solid and proven, man, woman, sharpen your sword. Sharpen your sword. Don't be the type of Christian who sits in church week after week with a faulty, feeble faith. 
Sharpen your sword. Open the Word. Get into the study of God's Word. Understand the meaning behind the words. Get into the verses. Meditate on these things. And sharpen the sword. Be practiced in prayer. If your faith is wobbly, you need to be in prayer. More than ever before. If you're uncertain, again, as we talked about, the Word and prayer will stabilize. It will take down the stronghold and it will stabilize your faith. Speculative religion, man, that stuff doesn't hold water. It gets beaten up. So, is your faith speculative or is it proven? Secondly, do you ever, and this is a tough one, do you ever raise yourself up against the knowledge of God? (laughs) I heard an uh (laughs) uh-oh. Do we ever do that? Raise ourselves up against the knowledge of God as if perhaps in some situations we might know better than He does. Lord, I know what You say, but I'm going to try it this way. You know what that is technically? That is a lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Because He knows what He's doing. And I'm confessing to you all, this rattles me. It rattles me as a teacher because it's real easy to get confident in your study and not to pause and say, now wait a minute, Lord, don't let me get out ahead of you. What are you saying? What is your word on the matter? Man, the stance of the superior, the height of human arrogance is is to do this, is, is to actually raise ourselves up and we do it without even thinking about it. I know what I'm doing here. Hey, brother, can we pray for you? No, I'm fine. I know what I'm doing. Oh, a bit lofty, are we? Are we raising ourselves up? Isaiah 2.11 again says, The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's Proverbs 3.34. And he goes on to say, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. And that's the beauty of prayer. See, while I might even apply the word more to strengthening faith against speculation, I would apply prayer more to this issue of raising myself up against the knowledge of God. You understand what I'm saying? That if I'm starting to feel haughty, what I need is to be down on my knees. If I'm starting to feel like I've got the answers and I have it down, that's when I need to pray more than any other time. Because prayer gets me on my knees and it does remind me how small I am and how great He is. As C.S. Lewis said, I don't pray to change God, I pray to change me. And prayer will do that. Bring us down to that place of, of humility. Is your faith speculative? Do you ever raise yourself up against the knowledge of God? And number three... Do you seek to hold every thought captive to Christ? Are you fighting that battle in your life? Psalm 19.14 Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Every thought, Lord. In this battlefield of the soul, every thought, take it captive, Lord. Let what I think about, what I meditate on, what I muse over, be captive to obedience to Christ Jesus. For Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So, 
personalizing this, we're talking about thoughts in captivity, knowledge in humility, faith with stability. And those strongholds, man, they will come down and we will be spiritually built up for the fight. For remember, we don't war according to the flesh. We don't battle that way. But Paul's opponents in Corinth were doing just that. So he is on the offensive-defensive, picking up in verse 7. He says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. Whoa, wait a minute, do we do that? If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Do you know in your innermost being that you belong to Christ? Do you know that? Listen, this is so important. When conflicts arise in family, among friends, in the church... Especially in the church, when conflicts arise, we must begin with extending that same grace to others. I love that Paul says this. He's talking against the super apostles, and the first thing he says to them is, Hey, if you believe that you have Christ in you, fantastic. Remember, so do we. We're not on opposing teams here. And you come along saying, Oh, we've got Christ. Don't listen to that, Paul. He's weak. Oh, big lettered, you know, but he's very weak in person. Don't listen to him. Hey, we have Christ too, Paul's saying. We're all in this. We're walking together. We are all his bondservants, even though we may not always look like it. Now, I dare say there are certain days where if you caught me, you would say, not looking very pastorly today, Rick. And I know there are times where if I ran into you somewhere, you'd be like, okay. (laughs) We don't always show it outwardly, but remember that's what he's saying. You're looking at things as they are outwardly. Stop it. Stop it. Outwardly, we're contentious. Outwardly, we disagree. Outwardly, we look a certain way or act a certain way or feel a certain, seem a certain way. But inwardly, hey man, we're all Christ's. We all belong to Him. He's the source of what draws us together. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul addressed the same thing. He said, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both, uh, bring, both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. I don't have to worry about people's motives. All I have to do is know A brother or sister who claims to be in Christ, they have Christ just like I do. And we may not always see eye to eye on certain things, but we're all in Christ. Cut each other some slack. I think that's what Paul's saying to these super apostles. Look man, cut me some slack. We got Christ. And he's going to go on from here. But in many cases, the, the personal dramas and the social skirmishes that happen from time to time in fellowships... They're really not worth the fight. They're just not worth the energy we put into it. I grew up going to church. You all know this. And I saw divisions. I may even have shared years ago that I was sitting in the backseat of our car, probably a kid of seven, eight years old, watching as someone yelled at my father through the open window after church in the parking lot on a Sunday. My dad, who was one of the new elders, being yelled at. And as a kid, I thought... 
We're at church. I understand this happening on the playground, but we're at church. How is this happening? And then as I grew in church and up through church, I began to fight battles. I began to have things that, you know, fall on my sword issues, big important things. And you know what I've realized over the years? So few things are that important. Things that I want to fight for. I want to be known as right in this. I am defending my honor. What honor? I'm supposed to be humble. So many things are not worth the fight. Now you might say, okay, well then, Rick, what battles are you willing to fight in this fellowship? And I would answer two things. Divisive heresy and deliberate immorality. Those are easy. Someone spreading heresy in this fellowship? I will fight that to the death. Someone's bringing in immorality, rebelliously, opposed to, again, his authority? We're going to deal with that. Everything else? Honestly, I'm 52. I don't have the energy for it anymore. (laughs) I'll fight for biblical morality. I will take off the gloves for doctrinal purity. But even those were called to handle with grace and truth. Now, in Paul's case, the authority with which he was bringing such doctrinal truth was being challenged. He says in verse 8, continuing, Even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Wow. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. It's integrity. Paul is saying, I am no different when I'm with you than when I'm writing to you. The same heart beats here. And what he's already explained up till now is the only difference that you might see is I may be a little more gentle in your presence because I'm trying to convey Christ. But I'm the same man here or there. And there's this undermining of Paul that's going on again by these super apostles at Corinth. That becomes even more clear in chapter 11. But we must understand this. As we wade into Paul's self-defense, which we get a lot of in chapters 10, 11, and 12, as we wade into this self-defense, the issue is not his personal feelings. He's not defending his feelings. You hurt my feelings, man. You were rough on me, man. It's not fair, man. That's not the issue. Uh, The issue is not even Paul's reputation. He's not worried about these things. He is defending the authority by which he brings sound doctrine. And that's important. Because what the devil would do is undermine Paul's authority so that the doctrine that was taught and brought could be undermined. So Paul is fighting back against that. He says in Philippians 1.16, I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And Paul says, I will go to the mattresses. For the gospel. I will fight for the gospel. Paul understood something that I think a lot of Christians misunderstand. And that is that his own personal reputation spilled over and reflected on the gospel. That in proclaiming him an apostle of Jesus Christ, in bringing the gospel to Corinth, 
how he was received and how he was talked about could negatively reflect on that. And so Paul said, I'm not going to let my reputation sully the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I will not let you sully it by saying things that are untrue. Godly authority. Paul is dealing from that position of godly authority. And it is never about personality. And it is never about presentation. It's not about charisma or charm or celebrity. This is much, much bigger. Paul says, my authority in these things was given, look back at verse 8, was given for building you up. That's why I come to you in authority. To build you up. And by the way, that is, in my opinion, the single solitary reason why any human being is given any authority at all in the church. That's it. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And I've always chuckled when I've read that. I hear, this will be unprofitable for you. Why? Well, because they'll bust you for it. So, so obey your leaders because they may make it difficult for you. That, that's not what he's saying. I believe what he's saying is that authority when grieved becomes distracted from the care and feeding of a fellowship. The cantankerous Christian is literally biting the hand of one who feeds them. And, and, and these distractions and these skirmishes, and I'm so thankful for the years that we've had as a fellowship at the bridge because these distractions have been few. But when they come, they always sideline what's really important. You know, what really matters here? What are we doing here? I think you all understand, as we've been saying, we're not all here fighting for our own personal way. There's one way, one truth, one life, that is Jesus This is about Him and for Him and through Him. This is His Word. We are His people. And so He gave authority, and and the reason He gave authority was for the building up of the body. Well, so that there would be human care in and for the body. Now, all authority in all church must be accountable. Not just within the authority either, but accountable to the church. I'm accountable to you. I've told you that before. I hope you know that. And I have no problem with people questioning teaching or or decisions that have been made. Questioning authority is a different issue. What do you mean? Well, when someone comes along and says, Who died and made you the pastor? I just say, Jesus. Why is that guy a leader and not me? How come he gets to and why? And Listen, that's not a new issue. This has been going on for centuries. Let me just read you a little story. Numbers 16, verse 1 says, Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohat, son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pelet, sons of Reuben, took action. They rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. Careful. You do not want to be one of the men of renown. 
Verse 3, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and they said to him, to them, you have gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is in their midst. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Thus saith the men of renown. And they are betraying their own mentality. And they are upset about the authority that's been handed to Moses and Aaron. I love how Moses responds. Watch this. This tells you something of his character. Number 16.4, when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. He went down. He didn't stand up. He didn't give a war cry. Call for Aaron to hold up his staff, hold it out, turn it into a snake and bite all these guys. I mean, you know, he didn't... He went down... And he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, tomorrow, when the Lord, uh, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourself, Korah and all your company and put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. And then Moses says, you have gone far enough. You sons of Levi. (laughs) Down in verse 28, the story continues. It is the next morning. And it says, Moses said, by this you shall know the Lord sent me to do all these deeds. And this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. Well, he's finished speaking these words, and the ground that was under them split open. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and all their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry for they say the earth may swallow us up. And fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men, those men of renown. He fired them. who were offering their incense. (laughs) And in Numbers 17, the story continues to confirm Aaron's role as the high priest. That's where Moses says, okay, now I want you to send a representative of every one of the 12 tribes. Have them bring their staff and, and bring it before the Lord, before the ark. And so they bring their staffs in. And Aaron's staff budded and blossomed. So Aaron was God's chosen man. Man, the point is this. If you want to lead in a church, serve. Get down on your hands and knees. Roll up your sleeves. Do the work. Serve the body. Love the people. That's that's the kind of leading that God elevates That's what He appreciates. I'll tell you what, the children of Israel and all those men of renown, they had no idea what Moses had been through to get to that point. We know, we've read the story. We know from the babe in the basket all the way to the shepherd, 40 years walking around with stinking sheep in the wilderness. We know what he had to put up with. We know all the grumbling and the complaining that went against him. And by the way, that's never any fun. How many of you have been grumbled against in your life? Just show of hands. Okay. How many of you enjoy it? 
Thank goodness. <laughs> and yet he had to put in, up with that day in and day out. And now they come up and say, what kind of leader? Who put you in charge? Da, 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 da. It's ridiculous. Moses not only earned the right to lead the people, Moses was given the right by God to lead the people. So Paul would say, obey your leaders and serve. Listen, there is no ladder of lordship in the church. You don't climb a ladder of lordship. Now, I saw that a lot through the years. Literally, the ladder of lordship, it started with, you know, someone being in charge of a ministry. And then they would get asked to be a deacon. They'd go up a rung, you know. They'd serve well as a deacon. And then they would get asked to be an elder. Boop, and up another rung. Because, of course, being an elder in a church, that's, that's the highly sought-after position. You know? Some of those guys went on to be pastors. Boop! That's so ridiculous. That is not how it works. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So there is no ladder of lordship. There is no climbing the rung in Christianity, in the church, in the fellowship. It is the servant of all. It is those who are least of all that God most highly honors. And that is different than the world. That is not how the world does things outwardly. So why, again, does Paul adamantly defend his authority? He is tearing down these strongholds of speculation and superiority and insubordination for this purpose. Again, verse 8, to build up the body. For the purpose of building you up. And I want to repeat that one more time, make it very clear. The single solitary reason any human authority is ever given in a church fellowship is for the building up of the body of Christ. Which tells me, if people, if there are elders or shepherds or pastors or leaders, and they are building up the body, what does that mean? It means they're underneath. It means they're in the low position. And not seeking for titles or authority or honor. He gave some as apostles, Ephesians 4.11, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 12. Paul says, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. In other words, look at me. Check me out. Look at what I've done. Look at what I'm capable of achieving. Man, you want to play the comparison game? Compare yourself to Jesus. And let's see how we're doing. But those who compare themselves with themselves, you know, the self-comparison, man, look at me. Look at what I'm able to do. No. Compare yourself to Jesus and then spout off about how great you are. Because it's through that comparison where we discover the only true measure of greatness is Jesus Christ Himself. But we will not boast beyond our measure, Paul writes, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure, 
to reach even as far as you, and note this, he is speaking geographically, to reach even as far as you, that is from all the way from the coast of Israel now out to and as far as Corinth. That's the sphere he's talking about. And verse 14, For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. So as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Paul was not into church transfer growth. Paul was not the kind of pastor, and I've met them as well, who moved into town intent on having the biggest show on earth and drawing as many people from other churches as they possibly can so that their, pastor, so that their church can be the happening thing. And Paul says, we didn't do that. And he's saying, Corinth, we didn't come to you to build on someone else's work and then take credit for it and boast about it. We didn't move in where there was already a thousand member church and add 200 members and say, look at what we've done. I did that. I was an ambitious young man. When I first got into ministry, first church, 300 people. Second church, 600 people. Third church, 2,500 people. I was climbing what I thought was the ladder. I was moving up as a pastor, as a man of renown. (laughs) And then God moved me to Anacortes and put me in a church of 30. From there, took me down a little further, put me in a barn with 20. And he was trying to teach me a lesson here, help me understand something. But I'll tell you what, and I know this from experience, it is easy to move into a church and take over a large youth ministry and claim success. Only years later I look back and realize, wow, I didn't build that. I just built on what was already there. There was already a solid foundation. And I just came in there and just kept spinning out the same old stuff. And I'll tell you something, the reason why we ended up moving up north at last was that we realized, Cheryl and I, we weren't seeing God work. We wanted to see God work. I wanted to see Him do something that no one else could do, that I couldn't do. And He led us up this way. Well, this is a great perspective that Paul is giving here. He he maintains that humble mentality of a true bondservant, and this is it. If I was going to sum up these words, I'd say this. Stick to your sphere. Stick to your sphere. Meaning, whatever God has given you in terms of your location, your personal assignment, your responsibility, and yes, your gifts and your anointings. Stick to your sphere and do that. Function in that. Don't go looking at other believers. Well, he's over here doing that. I'd really like to do what he's doing. No, no, don't do that. He's already doing it. Yeah, but she gets to... It doesn't matter what she gets to. What has God given you to do? Paul's saying God brought us all the way up through the regions of Galatia and around through Asia and Macedonia and down into Corinth. God led us here. There was no church in Corinth before Paul got there. He came to build in a fertile field where there was no other church. We stuck to our sphere. 
We function where God called us to function. So stick to your sphere and at the same time, stay out of the spheres of others. Do what God's called you to do and don't overextend yourself. Paul says that a couple of times. Verse 14, we're not overextending ourselves. We're not trying to get into someone else's business. By inference, the super apostles were. He doesn't specifically call them out on that, but that's what he's saying. They were getting all into this church's business and messing things up. Paul knew his limits. Romans 15.20, he said, Thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. I reached to Corinth, and therefore, therefore, Paul has this personal, almost fatherly sense of responsibility for Corinth. They mattered to him. And he boasts in them like a doting dad. By the way, he uses the word boast quite a bit here. In fact, 15 times Paul will use the word boast in chapters 10, 11, and 12. And he uses the word boast more in the letter to Corinth, 2 Corinthians, than in any other of his letters. So that's another one of those words that we see used a lot that shows us the continuity of this writing. And Paul is going to boast of himself. He has to, albeit foolishly, to make a point. And in fact, when we get to chapter 11, which we won't tonight, before he, he when he gets into that, he, he gives what has been called by some the fool's speech. The fool's speech. He says a couple of times, I'm just I'm being foolish here, so bear with me. But, and off he goes to boast about things. But he's doing it to make a point. And yet before he even gets to this foolish boast, he clarifies the only kind of righteous boasting. There is a type of boasting that you are allowed, that I am allowed. A boast that is not excluded from followers of Jesus Christ. And here it is, verse 17. He who boasts is to boast in the Lord. Paul quotes here from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. I just want to read it to you quickly. Jeremiah 9... 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. Let him who boasts, Paul says, boast in the Lord. It's interesting, when Jeremiah gave this, he gives what I think are pretty obviously mankind's top three boasts. The three big ones. For a human being. For someone, as Paul said earlier, who is looking at things outwardly, the three big boasts of mankind, wisdom, might, and riches. Super intelligence, great strength, or lots of money. Those are the three big ones. Compare those, as Jeremiah writes, to what God's top three boasts are. Who exercises loving kindness, or chesed, grace. Justice and righteousness. So ask yourself, in your heart of hearts, what do you boast of? And again, this gets a little uncomfortable and a little personal, but what what are you proud of 
in your life, in yourself? Can you say, I boast of this, I know Jesus. I know Jesus. What are you proud of in your life? I know Jesus. Well, great, I know you know Jesus. But what are you proud of? I know Jesus. Can you boast of that? Paul says in verse 18, For it is not he who commends himself that is approved or acceptable, but he whom the Lord commends. Now by the way, I mentioned the linguistic continuity of this letter a few times. This is another word that he uses throughout. This word commend. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, he said, We are not like many peddling the word of God. That would be the super apostles. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Chapter 3, verse 1. Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? This word commend that he uses in verse 18 and uses throughout this epistle, it first appears in 2 Corinthians among all the epistles of Paul. This is the first time we see it in this letter. He'll use it again in 2 Corinthians 4.2, in 2 Corinthians 5.12, 2 Corinthians 6.4. And then in chapter 10, verse 12, look back there again. We are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. He uses the word commend again. And then finally, again in verse 18, it is not he who commends himself that is acceptable, but he whom the Lord commends. And every time Paul uses this word commend, as he does throughout 2 Corinthians, it is, it is in contrast to the super apostles. It's in contrast to those peddlers, those for-profit false apostles who are going about commending themselves as having been sent by God. The word commend is sunistimai, and it simply means to approve of or to stand with. An early hint of a false teacher is a self-commender. Watch out. Look out for self-commenders. Those who present themselves. Those who who present their credentials. Who who talk about their abilities and and their degrees and and their training and what they have to offer. Be careful for the self-commender. As for us, we can commend ourselves to ourselves only if we happen to be flawless. Okay, Lori Beth, if you're perfect, feel free to talk about yourself all you want. Problem is, the second you do, you've just slipped into pride and all the perfection is right out the window. We don't commend ourselves to ourselves. No. He whom the Lord commends is acceptable. From Paul's inspired perspective, self-commendation in a believer's life is unacceptable. But how much better to be commended by God How much better to have the the sunistimai of God, to have Him stand up for you, as He did for Abram. Genesis 15.1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. I'm not only your protection, but I'm here at the end of the journey for you. I'm your reward. You win me. Man, that's a commendation. It's not a medal. It's not a prize. It's God Himself. 
And He promised this to Abraham. Paul wrote in in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who is against us? He's the one who's our commendation. He is the one who stands for us. And I love, I love the story of Stephen. Because in Acts chapter 7, man, he is bringing it. He is teaching the Word of God down through history, explaining from Moses and the prophets all the way up to Jesus who Jesus was. They take him out. They begin to stone him. And he looks up in the midst of the stoning and says, I see the heavens open at the right hand of God. I see the Son of Man. What's he doing? Standing. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But in Stephen's vision, at that last moment, right before he, by the way, doesn't die, he just closes his eyes and goes to sleep. He's not thunked by a big rock. God just takes him before that happens. But in that moment, Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus sunistami, standing for him, his commendation. And that is our reward. He is our reward. Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth He sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we commend ourselves to You. And Lord, in this moment, I'm reminded, Jesus, what You said, even as You would later stand for Stephen in his stoning, as You hung on the cross, as You spoke those words, Father, into Your hands I commend My Spirit. The ultimate act of a man commending himself to God. And so we commend ourselves to You. We, under Your authority, under Your power, under Your rightful rule, Father, over all our hearts, we commend ourselves to You. We do not seek the outward commendation of humanity. We seek only to hear our Father say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we praise You and bless Your name and we thank You for being the authority we so desperately need. Be lifted up in our hearts. Be lofty above all other things as we worship You now. In Jesus' name, Amen.